Well, Providence, uh, it's great to see you, to sing with you. I hope you've had a great, great week. Uh, if you're a guest with us, whether you're in this room or at home, live stream or some other venue, uh, welcome. We're glad that you have joined us. I want to ask you to turn with me to Titus. Uh, we'll be in chapter 3 uh, mainly, but we're actually uh, going to take um, our time this morning uh, and we'll actually look at uh, all three chapters. We won't read all three chapters. We'll just read uh, eight verses in chapter 3, but uh, it is uh, so, so good to see you. Uh, I'm, um, uh, so con- I love that song. I think it was so powerful. I've heard so many stories this week of folks, even in our church family, who are just totally depleted of hope and, um, and joy uh, because of sin or because of pain or because of things in their past. And I just want you to know that no matter where you're at, God knows where you're at. Uh, and he cares for you, and there is hope because he has power. And I just would exhort you to fix your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured a cross so that you could have hope in where you're at right now. Uh, it, it is, uh, there really is hope for you. In a moment, I want to pray for you. Uh, even before we do that, I want to um, help us see sort of where we're at in our series, and then... Uh, I want to pray for all of us uh, for that. And so we're in a series. It's five weeks long. We're in the second week. It's called Planning the Gospel. And it's birthed out of a vision uh, that, uh, that you and I, over the next three years, would be sharing the gospel, our own faith in Jesus Christ, with enough frequency uh, that it would actually um, be not only possible, but likely that a thousand of us here at Providence uh, would lead um, at least one person to faith in Jesus Christ and that we would then have the opportunity to keep meeting with them, to help them to grow so that they could then share their faith and, uh, and, and it would pass from one to the next to the next. This is possible. And you have to understand this, right? That, 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 that this isn't really creative, okay? This is, this is our instructions. It's not like I and the elders and the pastors sat and thought, you know what we should we should do. You know, this would be creative. We've never thought of this. Let's tell people about Jesus and see if more people would believe. Our instructions are so clear. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he looked at his followers and he says, therefore, because this just happened and because I have all authority that has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And so what you have to understand is even though 95% of American believers, and we would probably be no different from that stat here at Providence, 95% of all believers have never had the amazing privilege to lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ, we will be held accountable for doing so. And so as a church family and as, and as leaders, God, God tells us our primary job is not to do the work of the ministry. It's to equip the people to do the work of the ministry. And so this month, we just feel burdened of how can we not only encourage, but also equip our church family with this idea of how can we help each one of us become confident and hopeful in what God has made available to us, that we would go out of these doors and actually feel compelled I realize in a big church, we think, well, a thousand, there's a lot of those people that'll do it. I just want to encourage you, don't miss out yourself. Don't miss out yourself. And you know, what's interesting is you look at 
Um, in fact, even our whole work site right now, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, I have a great window and each, each, each day I kind of look out and just kind of see what they're doing. It's really, really cool. And there's one thing I haven't seen yet. And that is I've not seen the crew wear blindfolds, right? And there's good cause for that. There's good reason for that. You, you never come across skilled workmen who are wearing blindfolds. And in the very same way, you never, ever come across skilled witnesses who wear blindfolds to the things that God has already told us that are ingredients that are critical to us sharing the gospel. See, there's a lot of people who try to do that, though. They just say, you know, I understand. Here's some of the ways that he says, but I'm going to try to do it this way. But, you know, God, God's just so kind to us in that he not only gives us instructions and he not only gives us his spirit, but he even gives us his promises to say, listen, I'm going to be with you when you're doing this, that nothing can separate you from my hand and from my presence. And so as you think about the ingredients, right, we saw one last week, and it's the importance that you and I would remember very clearly God's grace in our life. Well, we move from that into the second one. You can see all five of them right here on the screen, right? Is that, is that what we want to do also is live very authentically, okay? What that really means, right, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to bear fruit to prove ourselves that we are his disciples. And then next week, we're going to look at the uh, absolute importance of praying faithfully for people who don't know Christ. The fourth week, we'll look at caring very personally for people. And then the fifth week is what do we actually tell people when it's time to open up our mouth? Now, what you have to understand about each one of these ingredients is they're all absolutely essential. They're all absolutely limited. But when you put all five of them into the bowl and mix them together, they're absolutely effectual. They're powerful. Amazing things happen when we do things God's way. And ultimately, when we think here on the second message of living authentically, what we're really thinking about here is the idea is that when people would look at the life of a believer, that they would look at that person's relationships, that they would look at that person's speech, that they would look at that person's joy or that person's love, or they would look at that person's life and say, if that's what it means to walk with Jesus, and if that's what it means to be a believer, then I consider that a trade-up from what I currently have. A trade-up. And yet, we know right now, throughout the world, throughout even America, sometimes that's not the case. And so what we find here in Titus is a strong instruction from Paul to Titus to the churches of the importance of living authentically as one of the ingredients of sharing the gospel in a fallen world. Okay, so if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Father, I pray today that you would help us to see the incredible value of abiding in Christ and striving after godliness and repenting of sin. As believers, these things should come natural because we've proven over and over and over that apart from you, we really can do nothing. And yet we ask that you would remind us once again Would you use your word this morning to give hope where there is hopelessness? Would you restore joy? Would you restore affection? God, would you give us courage to do the very things that you have called us to do? And God, I pray that you would examine our life even today on a day when we take the Lord's Supper and when we ask you to examine our life. Even now, before we do that, I ask that you would examine our heart and that you would root out anything that would lead to compromise or a shaming of our life or of you as we follow you. 
And so I pray, Father, that you would give us belief as we read and understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for 200 years in America, people who called themselves Christians had the privilege and the enjoyment of seeking to represent Christ in a culture that generally, not entirely, but generally, adopted biblical values, virtues. It's not that way anymore, but at one time this was very, very much the case over, over 200 years. And there's lots of examples in this. One is just schools. You look at some of the schools that now you look, gosh, that's not necessarily a place of godliness. That's not a bastion of holiness. And yet you look at where they started and it's a pretty amazing thing. Let's just look at one of them, okay? This is the seal of Harvard, okay? And in 1963, in fact, the, the seal, if you can see it right, Veritas, on those three books in the middle, Veritas means truth. And then you can see some words just outside of that shield. And one of them is Christ. The other means church. And the other means for. And so Harvard was actually founded. Their motto was truth for Christ and the church. This is where they started. Okay. And what's interesting is they had a set of rules and precepts. And in in, in 1636, this is what it said. It says, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17, 3 was actually the verse of choice that was selected as the, as the banner over Harvard, which is that there is eternal life in Jesus Christ alone. And therefore lay Christ at the bottom. That doesn't mean that, that he's last priority. That means he's the foundation. As the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Meaning we're going to start with Jesus Christ as the foundation of science and English and math. And everything else that we're learning about. And we're going to build on top of Christ. Because Christ is ultimately the preeminent one in the world. This is how Harvard started. And if you notice those three books, right, Veritas, what, what, like it's sort of hard to see, but the third book that, 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 that has the T-A-S on it, it's actually turned upside down. In fact, they have things on campus in concrete that they've not been able to take down. This is one of them. This is the next slide if you want to go ahead and put that up, okay? And what you see is that the third book at the bottom is not faced up, it's faced down. And this was symbolic of the fact that we could not identify everything that we need to identify with our own reasoning, that God's revelation has to come to us, that ultimately it's not just about our learning and our own creativity and our own philosophy, that all of that learning at some point in time has to be, the book has to be turned on its face and we have to look up to God and say, God, would you give us wisdom? This is how Harvard began. And this is what America was like, not entirely, but generally, right? That many of our values, things like purity, things like honesty, many of our ideals, things like responsibility and work ethic, and many of our cultural norms, things like marriage and gender, they closely echoed biblical instruction. And now the page has certainly turned, hasn't it? Virtues and values that you see in scripture, they're polarizing and the gap is widening. You see it even in the new logo at Harvard. It's not new anymore. It's been there for a while. This is it. They took out Christ and the church and they turned the book over. And now what they believe is that all truth can be identified 
within our own philosophy and our own reasoning. What once was a school that was intended to train people to actually be gospel witnesses has gotten so smart that they can't identify male from female. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the foolishness and the folly of what takes place when we reject Christ. And the question that comes to us now, when we consider that this is our culture and that the gap is widening, is now how shall we live? And this is ultimately where Titus comes in as such a servant to us. This is why God gives us stuff like this. It's such a treasure. You see, Paul and Titus, they traveled to an island named Crete. Now, Paul, you've probably heard of before. He wrote most of the New Testament. He's an apostle. Titus was a Greek man that Paul led to Christ. And he was such a godly man. He loved Christ so much that Paul used him as a case study. He brings him to Jerusalem in the book of Acts in order to show the Jews that didn't believe that Gentiles could ever love Christ like they did and said, see, Titus was a godly man. And Titus, he decided to go on a mission trip with Paul to the island of Crete. And when they landed in Crete, you have to understand that she too was in a moral free fall. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. It says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul comes back and he goes, You know why that guy was right? This is true. That the people on this island can be marked, can be marked by deceitfulness and evil and laziness. A bunch of fat people. Paul says, you know what? Their prophet, he's got it on the money. And then you look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, Paul is unveiling to us sort of the moral fabric on the island of Crete. What was interesting is Paul and Titus, uh, Paul and Titus, they, 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 they start walking around and they're sharing the gospel and they're sharing their faith in Jesus Christ. And people begin to believe a lot of people in a lot of different towns all around this island. Well, it's time for Paul to leave. And, and instead of taking Titus, he leaves him on the island. And you see why in chapter one, verse five, it says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, he says, you know what? I'm going to be like the worst mission trip leader in the world. I'm going to leave someone behind, okay? And, but what I want you to do is I'm going to give you some of my own authority. I'm going to delegate to you some authority, and you are going to delegate that authority to elders within these little towns where there's believers so that we can actually see local churches pop up and be gospel light influences all around the island. Well, some time passes and Paul, he, he feels concerned not only for Titus, but also for these believers and churches. And so he writes them a letter and that letter is in your hand. You think about just the amazing nature of the Bible that Paul's letter to one man finds itself in our hands. And what he does is, is he, re, he reminds him of Christ's immense power inside every faithful, authentic, obedient believer to affect cultural change. So look what he says in chapter three, starting in verse one. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Okay. This is Paul 
telling Titus what he needs to tell the churches. To be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So what does Paul want Titus to remember about Jesus' work in his life and the lives of every believer? The first is this, is that Jesus regenerates the core of who we are. So we're talking about our heart, our soul, that Jesus regenerates the core of who we are. See, we talked about this last week just a little bit, but if you cannot recall the life that you had before Jesus Christ, one thing that you can be sure of is that Jesus can remember what your life was like before, before your, your life with him. And that's why he says we ourselves were once. We're not that anymore, but we once were. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to all kinds of impulses within our heart. It says that we passed our days in malice and just being mean and envy, wanting what other people had. As a result of that, we had a lot of broken relationships. We didn't like a lot of people and a lot of people didn't like us. This is how Jesus remembers our life. And you see, it's important to understand this. This is what we did because this is who we were. There is always a connection between the fruit of someone's life and the condition of their heart, their core. Always. And see, like a fried motherboard or like an engine block that's been locked up, our core, when we sinned against God, it was rendered dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says it this way. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, When you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. All of us know what it's like to be tempted by Satan. Even if you don't believe in Satan, you know what it's like to be tempted. And what the Bible says is is, is that the thrust of that temptation is actually Satan himself. He's the one who's looking at us. He wants to kill and destroy us. And what he's saying is that every single one of us, we were rendered dead. The engine was locked up. The motherboard and the computer was fried. And as a result of that, the computer or the vehicle or the life, it could not function the way that God had intended and created for it to function. We had no capacity to do that, you see. And then he says, but, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. I love how the Bible uses words to illustrate Jesus. 
the goodness and loving kindness of God who appeared. What that means is that's he's talking there about Jesus. When Jesus appeared, it says that he saved us. And Paul wants us to be absolutely certain that we were not the ones that contributed or that pushed the ball just over the edge of the goal line. And so he says it wasn't by the works done by us in righteousness. He says it was according to what? To his mercy. Mercy is not receiving what we should receive. And the reason that you and I did not receive the due penalty of our sin is because Jesus received the due penalty as a substitute. Jesus lived a righteous life. And yet he went to the cross and he died on that cross and he was buried into a grave as a dead man. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And then he gave an invitation that Paul echoes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what Paul does to Titus in this passage is he shows them some of the things that God did in the life of every believer. What he does in the lives of every believer when we confess with our mouth and when we believe that Jesus is Lord. He says the first thing that happens is that by the Holy Spirit we are regenerated and renewed. Regenerated is the opposite of degenerated. Sin degenerated life. And the Holy Spirit regenerated life. It's the same word as born again or rebirth. It's the opposite of renovate. If you have a room that has all over the walls black toxic mold, it doesn't do you any good to paint. It's still there. He's not saying that what Christ did is he came in and saw all the broken furniture and says, you know, I'm really sure this broken table will look better over by the mirror. And this rusty little piece of furniture would look actually better over here by the window. That's not what he says. So what he says is I'm literally ripping everything out of the house and I'm going to give you everything new. This is what he said in John chapter three. A man comes up to him and, he, and they're talking. And he says, listen, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God unless you are regenerated. This is what he's talking about here is that he literally gives us a new heart that has new capacity to do new things. But then he also says that he does one other thing. He says that he justifies us by grace. He declares us innocent. And why he does that is because he does not want us as believers to walk around living in guilt. Some of us are still, we're like, okay, that's all good, but you don't understand the depth of my sin. I realize that sounds really self-effacing, but actually it's a sign of pride. Because when we say, if you know how great my sin is, that Christ can't forgive it, what you're actually doing is elevating your accomplishments in sin above Christ's accomplishments in his righteousness. Listen, he can forgive you of all of your sin. Isn't that good news? And he does. And when we trust him, he actually says, I want you to know that you're innocent in my sight. And so he says he justifies us. And then he does one other thing. He says that he actually declares us, he, that we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And what this means is he wants us to make sure that we don't spend our whole life doubting. 
He doesn't want us defeated. He doesn't want us trying to rearrange broken furniture with the rest of our life. He doesn't want us living in guilt and he doesn't want us living in doubt. He does all this by his spirit. He changes the core of who we are. And friends, I just want to encourage you, if you've not trusted Christ, stop trying to renovate your life with dead parts. Trust Christ and he will make you new from the core. You say, well, this is all great for the unbeliever, but what about for the believer? And you go, well, actually, listen, this was written to a believer to be taught to believers. Now, why would Paul spend so much time in chapter three trying to anchor Timothy, uh, this man Titus, to the idea of how God had saved him and regenerated him and justified him? And this is why. Because believers in Crete, just like you and I today in America, face the risk of isolating ourselves as we look upon unbelievers with scorn instead of sympathy. You see, the believers on this island of Crete, looking around and seeing everybody who's evil and everyone who's lying and everyone who's detestable and disobedient and All these people trying to legalize their sin and normalize their sin and create a culture around their sin. And these believers are looking at all of this that's happening. And it's very, very easy as believers living in a fallen world to actually begin to see the unbelievers as the enemy. And so we look upon them with contempt. We look upon them with scorn. Instead of looking upon them with sympathy of where we would be if Christ had not done a work of grace in our own life. And this is the application is let's allow God's grace to shape our view of others. You see, Paul was a pretty amazing man. I think of him like a soldier that's just always clutching a picture of his family before battle and that every Every book that he writes about, he clutches the memory of God's grace in his own life is the motivation for why he's going out to do such a hard work of ministry. He never got over his story. And that's why we started where we did last week. Because we'll never be active in sharing our faith until we're excited about his story in our story. We have to love the fact that we have been redeemed. And you see, and this is what made Paul so humble and grateful and even sympathetic to those apart from Christ. You see, when sinners sin and when they, when they want to justify their sin and they want to legalize their sin and make their sin normalized, we as believers are tempted to scoff instead of sympathize. And so Paul writes and he says, don't forget This is where you would have been if God had not done a work of grace in your life. You would still be there. You see, we're no better. We're just forgiven. And that helps us to see people in a different way. When we leave this building today with a lot of people who think like us, and we go into a world where there's a lot of people who don't think like us, it's really easy to look at news and look at Things in politics and look in culture and education and media and look upon all these people with scorn because we're looking at the wrong thing. And this is what this is what our flesh always does is we always look at other people according to the flesh. 
This is why Paul says, after looking at God's grace in his own life, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he gets to verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What does this mean? It means our general capacity is that when we look into a room, we look at everybody according to the flesh, and we see male and female. We see white, brown, black. We see young, old. We, we see this job, this kind of vehicle, this kind of title. And all of a sudden, we start to manipulate our own valuation of their need. And we become more sympathetic in being around some people and less sympathetic around being around other people. And what Paul says is this, is that when we have a new heart and we're absolutely absorbed with the idea that God has given us grace, that these eyes look at people and instead of seeing valuations of categories, we see one category and that is a soul. A soul that is of infinite worth, but a soul that is absolutely vulnerable. You see, if we do not love God's grace in our life, we cannot love people who are unbelievers. We can't love them where they're at because we won't want to go near where they're at. And so the first thing that he does is, is, Titus, don't forget, Jesus has regenerated the core of who we are. And then he gets into The second big point, and it's this, is that Jesus renews the capacity of how we live. He not only regenerates the core of who we are, but then all of a sudden he renews this capacity to live a new kind of life. Now, one of the things that's hard for us as believers is this, is just because Jesus has given us the capacity doesn't mean that every believer, including ourselves, lives up to that capacity. But the fact is that we have the capacity now to be people who are marked by love. And joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We have a new capacity. You see, before Christ, we had as much capacity to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit as one of these plastic trees that's lined around our building. They're green, they look pretty, but they cannot bear fruit. But now our capacity has been restored. And some people... The, the very idea of saying good works, it makes all of us really nervous because, you know, like, is he going down the path of moralism? But look at, look at how you were created. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then he says for or because, because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do you understand that when God first created you, when he created Adam and Eve, he actually created us to do good things, to be loving people, kind people. And what Jesus does is he restores the capacity to be able to do those things. This is why when you look at verse one and two of our text, it's followed by the word for. In other words, we can be respectful to rulers and authorities. We can be obedient We can be ready for every good work. We can speak no evil to anyone. We can be gentle and we can show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? For or because we were once like this, but now we have been saved. You see, all the good works that he calls us to do, they're simply a result of God saying, I've given you a new engine with a new capacity to live a new kind of life. 
And so you get down to verse 8, and Paul gets really serious. And he says, now, t- now listen, Titus, I want you to insist upon these things. Very rarely does Paul insist in the New Testament. He says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see, Paul knew that Crete needed the gospel. And Paul knew that the believers had the gospel. And Paul knew that nothing hurts our presentation of the gospel more than believers contradicting what we say by the way that we live. And so what Paul does is throughout the entire book, he emphasizes good works that flow out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to just show you. Look over in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In other words, what he's saying is there is a truth called the gospel that accords with godliness. That word means to reach us towards. The gospel literally helps us reach towards godliness. Then in verse 5, he says, now I want you to build up a leadership team within these churches. And he gives characteristics of nobility of the men who would actually lead in those ways. And then all of a sudden, look at verse 16. When he talks about the people who are unlike Christ and who cannot lead, he says the very last thing that that actually characterizes their life, it says they're unfit for any good work. Well, then you get into chapter 2. And he says, now, I want you to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And all of a sudden, he gives different things that each person within the church, and he starts with older men. He says, I want you to teach the older men to do this, and he gives them a list. And then he says, I want you to teach the older women and the younger women. Then he gets to the younger men. I love it. Let's simplify things. Just self-control. Just one thing. Just control. Just just all the appetites. Just self-control. That's all. And then he gets to verse 7. He goes, and don't forget for you. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And you get down to verse 10, and he tells them why he's supposed to be teaching all these things. He says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The word adorn, we think of it as clothing, which was sort of. The word comes from cosmeo, where we get the word cosmetics. And the idea of makeup is not necessarily to cover up flaws, it's to accentuate beauty. What he's saying is this, is that if you teach these things to the believers and these believers actually put this into practice, it will literally accentuate the beauty of the doctrine of the gospel before people on the island of Crete. Verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 14, it says that God created a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Then you get to chapter 3, and we've already read verse 1. It says that we'd be ready for every good work. Verse 8 says that we would be devoted to good works. And then he completes the whole thing in chapter 3, verse 14. And he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And so, Providence, let's pursue good works as a validation of Jesus' power. You see, one of the sad and yet great obstacles to showing unbelievers that Christ and his instructions are a trade-up is reminding and showing believers that Christ's instruction is a trade-up. 
You see, many of us simply don't see compromise in our lives because Christ and his mission are so far from our heart. And so Jesus says to us these words. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. You see, people notice those who add taste and healing and light to life. They start looking and recognizing, you know, I've noticed how you love people. I've noticed how you don't belittle the leaders that you don't agree with. I've noticed that that significant loss in your life, it didn't rob you of hope. You see, the fact is that some people are going to hate the light that we bring into their life, but they'll all notice it. What does this look like, this pursuit of good works? And to me, it always comes back to three things, three very, very simple things. The first is abide. You cannot forget that the whole of the Christian life is to stay connected to Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.6 says, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. In other words, our walk of discipleship is no different than how we came to faith in Jesus Christ. We believed God at his word. We trusted him. And so it all begins with abiding. And second is striving. Striving. Now this is a word that makes a lot of people nervous. And that's because we, we lump words together that shouldn't be lumped together. You see, merit and not effort is the opposite of grace. Sometimes we think, well, if we're a, a whole people about grace, then effort shouldn't be a part. No. Merit is the opposite of grace, not effort. And this is why after talking about the grace of God that's been poured in the life of believers so that we can live a, a godly life, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5-7, through 7, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. You see what he's saying? See, nobody decides to read an autobiography of a godly man or woman unless they have effort. And that effort is not a sabotage on our belief that everything is by grace. It's a response to God's grace that's come to our life. And so we need to be abiding. We need to be striving. And third is we need to be repenting. Repenting. It simply means that we ask God to reveal sin in our life and then we we practice inhospitality to what he reveals. And this week, I simply want to ask you to do something. A little homework for us. I want to ask you to carve out some time one day, maybe 30 minutes. This is a great thing to do every week, actually. Carve out about 30 minutes. You can go for a walk. You can do it alone at your home. I would encourage you to do a deep reset of your soul before God. To sit down and to ask God to reveal any sin in your life. Don't be in a hurry. Ask God to reveal any compromise in your life. Any unbelief in your life. Any sin of omission or commission. Any idols or any lust or any greed or any pride. Any ways that you're deceitful. Any sinful talk. See, each time God reveals a sin or a pattern, ask God to forgive you of that, to cleanse you of that, and then to renew you of that. And own every bit of it. Don't blame anyone else. Just say, God, I did this. 
It's been said that repentance is the vomiting of the soul. And that's why when you finish doing something like this, you're going to feel 10 pounds lighter. You're going to feel his peace. You're going to feel his joy. And you're going to feel godly motivation swelling in your heart. And one of the amazing gifts that you see with God is he ties everything together. And so to bring us to this place regularly, he gave us something called the Lord's Supper. Isn't it amazing? You think about like, why do we do this? Why are we going to do this right now? In fact, for the elders and those who will be serving as deacons, if you want to go ahead and head to the back and get ready. Why do we do this? Well, Jesus says it's not only to proclaim what, he, what he's done and to remember what he's done, but it's also to give us a regular reminder to go before him and say, God, here's my life. Is there any sin? Would you cleanse me of it? And so we do this as a church family. We love to do this. And one of the reasons is because of the grace that God gives to us when we are forgiven of our sin. So if you have not trusted Christ, we would simply ask you to let these things pass. But if you have, we welcome you to this table. And as these elements are being passed, we would simply ask you to take Christ at his word, to confess any known sin in your life, to be forgiven so that you can take this with a clear conscience. So if you will, let's bow. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness, for your grace, and for your love. And we pray, God, that as we take this amazing gift of yours, the greatest meal of the month, God, that you would fill our soul with hope and joy in remembering that we've been regenerated, that we have been justified, that we have been made heirs of eternal life, that you would give us hope instead of guilt and confidence instead of doubt. We love you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.